Welcome to Oak City Church, a family of learners, lovers, and givers sent. For more information, visit us online at oakcitychurch.com. Let us know if we can help you in any way. Thank you for listening. Well, good morning, Oak City Church. Uh, Thank you for tuning in with us this morning. Um, We're glad you decided to join us. I'm going to be honest. There is a, there's the, um, the first few weeks of doing this, there's some novelty to it. There's some like almost excitement of getting everything together and figuring it all out. And, uh, I'm, I could not be more thankful for the team of folks that is here each week and, uh, for Jake and Danielle for leading us in worship and doing a great job at that. And this morning, Daniel and John are here behind the scenes, putting all this together and, and it's great. So there's a novelty to it and an excitement to it and an Easter even as that. And we've even talked about how there's something when you communicate from the stage, either as I do or them leading in worship, that there's some nonverbal communication that happens between you and, and the folks that are in the seats and an audience. Um, that when, when it's not there, like there's a little bit less tension that you don't have to worry about. I'm over all that now. Now I'm just sick of it and want things to be back to normal and people to be in the room <laughs> because we miss you a whole lot. And I miss you. And you can tell by looking at like YouTube numbers, who's tuned in and, and, and we get some feedback from folks, which has been great, but I just miss you. So, uh, know that we'd love to get in touch and just spend some time chatting or zooming or whatever, whatever it is. I'd love for you to fill out the connect card. If you, I know a lot of you are just on your TV going straight through YouTube on the website, on the Oak City Church website. When you go, when you click the live stream thing, and then you see it at the bottom of that page is our connect card. And so we ask you for prayer requests and we ask you for praises and things that God's doing. And we pray for those throughout the week. If you're new, you can check that box and we'll connect with you and get you a little bit more information about the church, have a conversation, answer some questions. So we'd love for you to do that. And so take some time um, this morning, like I, I know the Good Friday service wasn't live streamed. It was recorded. So I had to watch myself and it's hard too. So I know you're like cooking breakfast while you're watching the sermon, you know, so you can look at that connect card and get that thing done. And I would like a few more filled out this week so we can connect with you and find out uh, what's going on. So please do that uh, this during the course of this this morning. This sermon is a little bit of Easter part two. I decided to continue the Faces of Easter series for a week or two longer because there's a few characters that I wanted to talk about. And this morning, it's the Apostle John that I want to talk about. But I'm going to start with a question for you. And my question for you is, who, who loves you the best? Who loves you the most? Like, and if you had to think through the course of your life, who is it that that has loved you best over that time. If you had to make a list of like the top five people that have loved you the best over the course of your life, who would be on that list? Now, I happen to think that's a really good question in part because as I was thinking about it this week, I thought I've never thought about that question before. Never, never asked it. And I think it's a super important, influential, life-shaping list of people that we don't think about. And it, it's a hard question. It's an, it can be an emotional uh, question. So for most of you, I hope that your mom and your dad or your mom or your dad, you know, hopefully it's both that are towards the top of that list of five, because I think that's how God designed it to be. And he put us in families so that we would have 
a love that is sure and is consistent and that will shape us. But I know for some of you, they're not in that list and that has shaped you. That is incredibly difficult and painful. Some of you had absent parents, you had addicted parents, you had abusive parents, and that has shaped your life. Um, we've had a bunch of people over the past few years, either adopt or foster kids. And so uh, like I've even learned a little bit about attachment disorder and how significant a thing that is when a kid doesn't attach to their parents and how that shapes all of their other relationships. And so this list is tremendously influential. I remember years ago, I'll never forget this. We're in a marriage thing and in this big group setting, and they're talking about family of origin and how significant that is. And a guy that had to be close to 60, had been super successful in his life, said the thing that shaped him most over the course of his life was that his dad didn't come to his high school football games. And that drove him. And I thought, this is crazy that this guy, 40 years on, like that's still the thing that influences him the most. And so it shaped you. And for some of you, you had completely supportive and loving parents, and that has shaped you. It shaped your life. Uh, If you're married, your spouse hopefully is on this list of five, but for some of you, your spouse isn't. For some of you, you were married, and it didn't work out, and now you're divorced. And so the person that should be there isn't there, and that has shaped you in tremendous ways. Or you're married, and things just haven't worked the way that you had hoped that they would work, and so you have a hard time putting them that high on the list because you're in a relationship where you're just not sure where things are and you feel a little bit stuck. You know, it could be that your children are on this list. It could be great friends. Hopefully there are some brothers and sisters in Christ. If you're walking with Jesus that over the course of your life have shaped your life, it could be a mentor or a mentee, you know, somebody that you poured into people that shape your life. And how do you know who goes, who goes on that list? Is it someone who's stuck with you through thick and thin? Is it someone who's told you the hard truth uh, when you needed to, to hear it? Is it somebody who's been around forever? And so they know, they just know everything about you. And so they're on that list. Is it somebody you just really enjoy spending time with and you enjoy being in their presence? And so they're going to be on that list. Or is it somebody who's encouraged you and consistently believed in you throughout your life? Uh, who's on that list? And that list matters. The, the strength of that list, the depth of that list matters. It will shape your mood on a given day. It will shape your confidence in a season of your life. It'll shape your dreams and what you think is possible in life. It's going to shape the way that you treat the people around you. That list uh, matters. And so the Apostle John is going to say something And he's going to say it over and over again that I think is kind of astounding that reveals his list and that Jesus is the top of his list and that shaped everything about his life. And um, we'll get into this. John walked with Jesus, so maybe he's got an advantage there, you know. But I think he wants Jesus to be at the top of our list and that to shape the course of our lives. And he's saying that it's, it's personal. It's personal. And I don't, I don't say that. I don't preach this lightly. Um, I'm not, I'm probably not the guy that's most in touch with his emotions. Me saying I love you to people uh, doesn't, doesn't come easy for me, um, even with the Lord. My dad, when, when I went off to college, I remember my dad gave me this bumper sticker that said, Jesus is my best friend. And I thought, I don't know, like, I really love Jesus. I was walking with Jesus, but I don't know that I'm going to call Jesus my best friend. Like, that seems a little bit weird. Well, the Apostle John had that bumper sticker 
on his whatever he rode around, locked cart, or whatever it was. Like, it really was, and, and his love for John, and I think John would say his love for us more than anything else, should shape the course of our lives. So let me go through a little bit of the Easter passages and the post-Easter passages and tell you what I'm, what I'm, um, what I'm talking about and then, and then talk about what that means. So this is John chapter 20, John chapter 20. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark, and she saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. She ran and went to, to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. Now, John, we're reading from John. So John is the one that wrote this. And the other disciple and the one who Jesus loved is John. So John is talking about himself in the third person. And he said to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, which is the one writing this, John, and they were going towards the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first and stooping to look in, saw the linen clothes lying there, but didn't go in. And Simon Peter came following and went into the tomb. And Peter saw the linen clothes lying there in the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. And the other disciple, John, who had reached the tomb first, also went in and he saw and he believed for as yet they did not understand the scriptures that he must rise from the dead. And so the disciples went back to their homes. A few observations about this little passage. And this is what we skipped last week on Easter. Um, but it's really interesting. They go in, John goes into the tomb and he sees, and then Peter goes in and he sees, and then John goes back in and he sees. And there are three different Greek verbs used for see. So John goes in and the verb is blepo, to look at. He just looks at it. Peter goes in and the Greek word is theoreo. So he theorizes. And when he's talking about the face cloth and the other claws and how they're lined, we read that and we're like, what is he talking about? For, but for him and for John, it makes total sense what they're talking about. And he's thinking it through and theorizing. And then John goes back in and the word is Edon, which means to perceive. And so he puts the pieces all together and it says he perceives and he believes and he gets it. Jesus, this means Jesus has risen from the dead. And so he's the first one to believe. Now, John reveals that I think that some things that are a little bit quirky. First of all, he talks about himself in the third person. When people talk about themselves in the third person. You get a little bit suspicious of that. He passive aggressively points out that he outran Peter to the tomb. So it says both of them were running together, but the other disciple, John, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And then he, the next few verses later, he says, but then the other disciple who reached the tomb first also went in and saw and believed. So when you do that once, say I beat Peter to the tomb, I think you're just recounting facts. When you do it twice, I think you're making a point. And I don't know what this is, but I kind of love it. I think it's a guy thing. I think guys are really competitive. I think Peter and John were really good friends. You read through the book of Acts. They get arrested. They, they do time together. You know, like they've got a really close relationship over the years. John lives, he's the, he lives longer than all the disciples. He lives into the 90s AD. Peter is crucified in the 60s AD. So when John writes this, and he writes late, um, Peter's been dead for 30 years, so there's a little bit of like have some respect for the dead, but I think he is just for all time, for posterity's sake, declaring that I'm faster than Peter. And I envision when John gets to heaven, he runs into Peter somewhere, and Peter's like, really, bro? You had to put it, you had to put it out there for everybody to see. I just think that's what's happening. I could be completely wrong about that. And so that is weird. And then John refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved, and he does it a lot. He does this a lot. 
So this is the next chapter, John chapter 21. This is a little while later. Jesus tells them to go to Galilee, the northern part of Israel, and he'll meet them there. They go fishing, and while they're fishing, just as day was breaking, Jesus stands on the shore, but the disciples didn't know it was Jesus. And Jesus says, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat. You'll find some, so they cast it. And they weren't able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. And then it says, that disciple whom Jesus loved, so he says it again, therefore said to Peter, it's the Lord. And when Peter heard it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. So I'm going to skip a few verses. This is where Jesus has a conversation with Peter. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Does that three times. Restores him to ministry. And at the end of this passage, Peter turns and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved. So he does it again following them. The one who had also leaned back against Jesus during the Last Supper and said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? And when Peter saw John, he said to Jesus, what about this man? And Jesus said, if it's my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So he refers to himself as the one who Jesus loved a lot. He does it six times in his Gospels. Uh, or gospel. John is, John is thought to be the youngest of the disciples. Uh, all of the disciples are recorded to have been martyred for their faith. They died painful deaths because they would not deny that Jesus had risen from the dead. John is the exception. John is the one that lives to old age. But Tertullian, an early church father, uh, he records that the emperor Domitian tried to kill John by pouring boiling oil over him, and John lived through it. And this happened in the Colosseum in Rome, and it was a miracle, and a bunch of people believed and became Christians that day because they saw it. So Domitian exiled him to the Isle of Patmos, and that's where he wrote the book of Revelation. He also wrote a couple little letters late, first, second, and third John, uh, as they're recorded in our Bible. He, church, he pastored a church at Ephesus. Um, that's where allegedly he was buried. There's a basilica there over what is supposed to be John's tomb in Ephesus and cared for, for Jesus' mother, Mary. Now, going back to my opening question, thought, like who has loved you best and how that's shaped you? Jesus was the top of John's list. I am the disciple whom Jesus loves. And people have tried to figure out why John did that forever, you know? So I read through this week people's thoughts about why Jesus refers to himself like that. One person said modesty. I thought, modesty? Like, I don't know how you get there. I don't know. I've got four kids. If one of them kept referring to themselves as the one who mom loves best, I don't think the other kids would think that that was quite modest, you know? So I'm not sure that's it. Charles Spurgeon, a famous British preacher, I read a sermon that he wrote on this whole thing, and um, he thinks it was because John really was Jesus' favorite. <laughs> and he makes a big case for this, that they just had a really close relationship. And he said all the other disciples knew it. Now, I'm not—it's hard to say that I think Spurgeon is wrong, so I can't really say that. But I don't really get it, because I think Jesus probably didn't—try hard— like, I've got four kids. I don't want any one of them to think that they're my favorite. I don't have favorites. I do—I have one girl, so I do—we do joke from time to time that Abigail is my favorite girl— uh, my, my favorite daughter, but, but, but the kids suspect something else. So, but it's not. None of you are my favorite. I love all of you the same. They're watching. And, and I think Jesus would probably play that the same way with his disciples, but that's what Spurgeon thought. Um, someone thought that he was concealing his identity for fear of embarrassment or persecution. I don't know if that's the best answer. Others thought that he was the narrator 
And so referring to himself in the third person allows him to be objective. I don't think that's it either. I think this was his core identity had come to be the most important thing about me is that Jesus loved me. Um, other, other folks do this. Matthew refers to himself as a tax collector frequently in his gospel. It's like he never wants to forget where he came from. Paul, a couple times, refers to himself as the chief of sinners. And I don't think Paul, like, Paul's not a worse sinner than the rest of us. I think all of us are supposed to think of ourselves as the chief of sinners because we know our own sin the best. I know my sin better than I know anybody else's sin. And so I am the chief of sinners based on what I know. And I think that's what John is doing here, is saying that this is who I am. I am the one whom Jesus loves. And we should all have that identity. When, I, when my kids were little, I used to tell them this all the time. The most important thing about you, the most important thing about you is that God loves you. God loves you because I, I want that, that, that to be the thing that defines them. And so often in culture, that's not the way we define ourselves. We define ourselves by like our greatest accomplishment. We define ourselves by the thing that we've done in life that impresses people the most. And if that thing isn't there, then we define ourselves like as, as lacking. Um, our tombstones don't generally read our epitaphs. Our obituaries aren't loved by whoever, you know. They are accomplished these things. John is old when he writes this. He's in his 90s when he writes this. Uh, it, it, his epitaph on his tombstone was the one whom Jesus loved because that was his identity. One person wrote, perhaps the disciple is never named, never individualized so that we can more easily accept that he bears witness to an intimacy that is meant for each one of us. The closeness that he enjoyed is a sign of the closeness that is mine and yours because we are in Christ and Christ is in us. It wasn't just for John. It's for all of us to think that we are all the disciples whom Jesus loves. We're all the disciples whom Jesus loves. And again, that is not, that is something the pastor is supposed to say, but I do not say that to you lightly. It is not easy for me to suggest that you should have a personal relationship with a God who created two trillion galaxies. And the Bible says has the hairs on the heads of eight billion people numbered. That's hard for me to grasp that it's personal. But if at the same time, if, if God is, and we are so intensely personal, and if we're made in the image of God, God is intensely personal. And the thing I conclude from all that is that God is a whole lot bigger than we give God credit for. And God wants you to think of yourself as the one whom Jesus loves because you know his love for you the best. We're all the one who Jesus loves. So that's my first point. We, we are all the disciple who, whom Jesus loves. A second is that love or the lack of it is going to shape everything about your life. It's going to shape everything about your life. And I think we put kind of a hard shell around ourselves, maybe as a self-defense. And, and so this reality is below the surface, but it's not very far below the surface. And it just shapes how we act. I will, I will, I will go back from time to time to the Garden of Eden because I think this is where this starts. And you've got Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve know two things for certain. They know that they're loved and they know that they're good. And they know that they're loved because they walk with God in the cool of the day in the garden. And God is love. So you wouldn't be in God's presence without knowing that you're loved. And they know they're good because God has created everything and declared that it's good. And so they know that they're good. 
Uh, now Satan comes into the garden and he convinces them that, that God doesn't love them. That's the lie. And it's the lie that we still struggle with today. And so God said, don't eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Satan says, listen, he doesn't want you to eat from that tree, not because that's in your best interest, but because it's in his best interest that you don't eat from it. Because when you eat from it, he knows that your eyes will be open and you'll be just like him. And so God doesn't really love you. And so they buy that lie and then, and then they perform an act that makes them not good. They, they rebel against God and they instantly know it. They feel shame and they start blaming each other and everything gets uh, messed up. Now, from that point, we've all been asking the question, am I loved and am I good? And we will, we will do anything to get affirmative answers to those questions. Like it shapes so much about how we live our lives. In just in, in life, in pastoring, in counseling, um, I have an idea that most people think of themselves as the one that nobody really loves a whole lot. <laughs> um, I think that most people feel like they're on the outside of things, looking in. I think most people get in, you know, in a group and they feel like they're on the fringes and everybody else is kind of close to the center. I just think, not everybody, but I think that's the default for most of us is uh, that's how we, that's how we think about things. Um, I think most people are thinking a lot about what other people are thinking about them when the reality is that those other people aren't really thinking about you. You're think, they're thinking about what you're thinking about them, you know? Uh, but we're, we're tricked into thinking that. We live in a consumer society where we're sold stuff constantly. And the primary way we are sold it is if you get X, then people will think more of you. That, you know, people will esteem you more. They will love you more. That is the, the subtle or not so subtle message in most of our advertising. One of my favorite um, books over the years is a book called Searching for God Knows What uh, by Donald Miller. And he, he starts with this premise that we're based on Genesis, that we're wired to get our idea of who we are from outside of ourselves. And we talk so much about self-esteem, like it coming from inside of ourselves, but it's just not how we're made. We're always going to look for it from outside of ourselves. And so he, he makes this statement. He said, a child learns early that there is a fashionable and an unfashionable in the world, an ugly and a pretty, a valued and an unvalued. Where this system comes from, God only knows, but it's rarely questioned. And though completely illogical and agreed upon by everyone as evil, it remains in play, commanding our emotions as a possession. It isn't something taught to us by our parents. It's something that comes naturally, as though a radioactive kind of tragedy happened, screwing up our souls. Adulterated or policed, the system can grow into something more civilized, but no less dominant as a drive of nature. In youth, the system is obvious. If you want to learn the operating system to which humans are subjected, step into a classroom of preteen students and listen to the dialogue. You'll hear the constant measurements, the talk about family wealth, whose father drives what car, who lives in what neighborhood, and who is dating whom. So here's how it feels. From the first day of school, the conversation is the same as it would be if hundreds of students were told to stand in line, ranging from best to worst, coolest to most uncool, each presenting their case for value, each presenting an offense to the, the cases of others, Alliance, alliances being formed as caricatures of reality television or vice versa. And I, I, it's, it's kind of the premise of the book. And, and while it, it changes when you grow up, it, it maybe diminishes a little 
it doesn't a lot. Like we still do the same thing. Um, we still do the same thing. And, and we're, and it's because we're looking for esteem and we're looking for love and we're looking for an identity in that. In the book, he ends up saying, if Jesus had a perfect relationship with his father in heaven and was perfectly loved by his father, then he wouldn't engage in those same types of comparisons and those same games. And he goes through scripture and says, he doesn't, he doesn't because he has the perfect love of his father and the degree to which we understand that we're loved by God and by others is the degree to which the line doesn't matter and the comparisons don't matter as much as they do to others. And so that's what he's saying. Like that love, the love that we have in Christ is the thing John's saying that should shape us the most. And it never, it never changes. In Romans, uh, Paul writes this, God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God shows his love for us in this, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. At our worst, he gave us his best. He showed us his love when we, didn't, when we deserved his love the least. Um, later in Romans, in Romans chapter 8, he goes through and, and just makes a point. He says, Who, uh, what shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Knowing all these things were more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We have this thing that is consistent, that we didn't earn, that is never going away, that is never changing. And that's the thing that should drive us and define our lives. There's a bit from a... um, a book called The Ragamuffin Gospel by a guy named Brennan Manning. He says this, When I get honest, I admit I'm a bundle of paradoxes. I believe and I doubt. I hope and I get discouraged. I love and I hate. I feel bad about feeling good. I feel guilty about not feeling guilty. I'm trusting and suspicious. I'm honest and I still play games. Aristotle said, I'm a rational animal. I say I'm an angel with an incredible capacity for beer. To live by grace means to acknowledge my whole life story the light side and the dark. In admitting my shadow side, I learn who I am and what God's grace means. As Thomas Merton put it, a saint is not someone who is good, but who experiences the goodness of God. The gospel of grace nullifies our adulation of televangelists, charismatic superstars, and local church heroes. The gospel of grace obliterates the two-class citizenship theory operative in many American churches. For grace proclaims the awesome truth that all is gift. All that is good is ours, not by right, but by sheer bounty of a gracious God. Well, there is much we may have earned, our degree and our salary, our home and our garden, a Miller Light and a good night's sleep. All this is possible only because we have been given so much. Life itself, eyes to see and hands to touch, a mind to shape ideas, a heart to beat with love. We've been given God in our souls and Christ in our flesh. We have the power to believe where others deny, to hope where others despair, to love where others hurt. This and so much more is sheer gift. It is not reward for our faithfulness, our generous disposition, or our heroic life of prayer. Then he says, my deepest awareness of myself is that I am deeply loved by Jesus Christ and I've done nothing to earn it or deserve it. My deepest awareness of myself is that I'm deeply loved by Jesus Christ and I've done nothing to earn it or deserve it. What's your deepest awareness of yourself? 
What's your deepest awareness of yourself? I have a feeling that for, for most of us, or for a lot of us, our deepest awareness is some sense of inadequacy, some way in which we are falling short. And I don't think that's how God thinks about us. When I counsel folks, um, I'll often ask them about whatever the situation is, their relationship, and just how they feel about it, what they think about it. And then at some point in the conversation, I'll pivot and say, well, what does God think about all this? And it's almost like the thought never occurred to them. <laughs> and I think we can, we can walk through life and follow Christ. And in some key areas of our life, it never occurred to us what he thinks about us. My deepest awareness of myself is that I'm deeply loved by Jesus and I've done nothing to earn it or deserve it. That's someone who lives their life as the disciple whom Jesus loves. Now, my third point is that your awareness of God's love will shape you in some specific ways. And so I'm going to pull a few passages um, from from 1 John. So this is uh, a little letter that John wrote uh, late in his life after 50 years of being shaped by thinking of himself as the one whom Jesus loved. And it shapes him in a lot of ways. And I just pulled out a few ways that I think it shapes him specifically. And the first one is that God's love will make you loyal. It'll make you loyal. And so John writes this, uh, and and it's a little harsh, I guess. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father isn't in him. For all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. It's there's a bit of this um, searching for God knows what book in it where he's describing a system of the world. And John is saying, hey, you cannot be a part of that system. Like after 50 years of being the one whom Jesus loves, like he doesn't want to be a part of that at all anymore. And, and is saying like, you're going to choose one or the other. Uh, when you have someone you love or someone who's loved you really well, you, you don't let someone trash their name. You get fiercely loyal to them. Uh, with, with all this time, my, my, um, my kids play uh, soccer a lot, so we watch a lot of soccer. There's no sports, and so we've been picking up some old games off of YouTube, and one of the games we watched was a World Cup final between Italy and France from a few years ago, and it was just one of the most fascinating things that's ever happened in soccer hacking to the end of that game. There was a French guy, Zidane, who was the greatest player in the world. This was his last game. He was going to retire after it, and in the second overtime, it's a tie game. They need him. He, off the, away from the ball, just headbutts this Italian defender, like sticks his head down, bull rushes him, and, and gets his head right in his chest, gets a red card, gets thrown out of the game. And you're like, what happened? Well, it turns out the defender said something about his sister, which there's just something a little bit. It's not funny to say stuff about people's sister, but there's just something funny about that. But there's like a loyalty that's like, you're not going to do that. And I will like jeopardize everything. You're not going to do that. And I think there's something in that with John when it comes to, to Jesus. At one point, while Jesus is still on earth, this is in Luke. I think it's recorded. The disciples are going from Samaria Um, or from uh, Galilee down to Judea, and they had to pass through Samaria, and the Samaritans and the Jewish people didn't get along, and so they need a place to stay for the night. They go into the Samaritan village, and they won't let them stay there, and so they come back out, and they're like, they won't let us stay there because we're Jewish people, and and John says, hey, do you want us to call down fire on them, Jesus? Like, he's just got that boldness in his personality that he's not standing for it, 
And there's, it's like with him, you're in or you're out with this. Like if you love Jesus and Jesus loves you, then there is a, an, like a, just a super weight to it. it. Reminds me of a quote from C.S. Lewis where he says, Christianity can either be not important at all or it can be infinitely important. The only thing it can't be is like kind of important. And I, th- I think that a lot of us, especially in this quote with the world, when, you're, when we're in the world, um, it's easy for it to be kind of important, but not infinitely important. I made a comment a few weeks ago in a sermon about, you know, the kingdom of God and my kingdom, and we live in between these kingdoms, and I kind of want dual citizenship in the kingdom. But Paul says, like, this is not our home. We are citizens of God's kingdom. We're citizens of heaven, and so we should live as such. And John, after 50 years, I think totally got that, totally got that. And there was a loyalty in him that drove the way that he lived his life. Um, Spurgeon, in that sermon, wrote this. He said, how could he be false to him who had loved him so? How could he refuse to bear witness to the gospel of the Savior who had loved him like Jesus loved him? What mobs of cruel men could cow the heart of the disciple whom Jesus loved? What form of banishment or death could dismay, dismay him whom Jesus loved? No, henceforth, in the power of that name, John becomes bold and faithful. He serves his loving friend with all of his heart. And so living as the one whom Jesus loved will breed in us uh, a loyalty, a fierceness about our loyalty to Christ. That's one thing. God's love will make you love. God's love will make you love. We should love well if we have been loved well. And so John writes this, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and has sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one's ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Uh, And so if if we have been loved so well, then our love for the people around us should be being perfected. And I feel like there's something intensely practical about this. And with the other things that I've said, if at your core, uh, there is the love from God and a God in whom there is no shadow of turning and a love isn't that isn't dependent upon what you do for God. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That is when Paul says he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's it. That is the gospel. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so if that, if that is at our core Um, then there's something really consistent about your internal life because that's not changing. Those facts aren't changing. That is what it is. And if you have that at your core uh, and it defines you, then you don't need the people around you to define you. You may need them to affirm that in you, but you don't need them to define you and it frees you to love them well. When you don't need to take from the people around you, then you're free to give to the people around you. When you live hearing the Lord say, lose your life to save it, and, you know, um, the, what it means to, to, to love is to lay down your life for your friends, and so that's what the call is, then you have motivation to love the way that he loves. That's, then that forces some hard questions. Uh, do I love freely, or are my relationships more of a means to an end. Um, 
when he says greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends, does that, does that mark your relationships with the people that God's placed in your life? Do you concern yourself more with how you can build the people around you up? Or do you concern yourself more with how the people around you have disappointed you because they've fallen short? Uh, would the people around you describe you as a servant? Or has your love gotten a little bit lazy? Um, do you take the people around you for granted? And in a coronavirus world, like we have a lot of opportunity to ask hard questions like that because we're spending a lot of time uh, with the people that are in that top five list that we love well or we're in their list and they love us well. Is this what marks our relationships with those people? Uh, John also says this on that, on that note. He says, by this we know love that he laid down his life for us and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's good and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And so in a time when, and it, this is hard because I know a lot of people that, that they're, I mean, life has changed, but they're not suffering a lot as a result of the coronavirus. Some people are benefiting from it, like they're thriving in the midst of this, but some people are really suffering in the midst of it. And how are we responding to that? Um, are we responding in deed and truth? when we see the needs of the people around us. And so God's love will make us better lovers and God's love will make us bold, lastly. And so John says this, there's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. And so over time, there's something about dwelling on and cultivating and living out of that perfect love that God has for us that takes fear out of our lives. And that's, challenging. And that's challenging in a time like this where there's a whole lot to worry about. Uh, Spurgeon, another quote from his sermon, he said, they spend in anxious thought the strength which ought to have gone in hearty love. They spend in anxious thought the strength which ought to have gone in hearty love. And so he's saying we spend time worrying about things that we should spend like loving the people around us. And it's an either or because you only have so much uh, mental energy to work with and emotional energy to work with. Uh, Manning puts it this way. He says, while we profess our faith in God's unconditional love, many of us still live in fear. Henry Nouwen remarks, look at the many if questions we raise. What am I going to do if I do not find a spouse, a house, a job, a friend, a benefactor? What am I going to do if they fire me, if I get sick, if an accident happens, if I lose my friends, if my marriage doesn't work out, if a war breaks out? What if tomorrow the weather is bad, the buses are on strike, or an earthquake happens? What if someone steals my money, breaks, in, breaks into my house, rapes my daughter, or kills me? Once these questions guide our lives, we take out a second mortgage in the house of fear. And so that's a real practical like, question for you and I, is how, how much of our mental energy is dominated by the what-ifs? Because that's living out of fear and over years of being the one whom Jesus loves, fear is, is that perfect love is supposed to do away with fear or, or diminish it. Um, and, and for a lot of us, I don't think it has. He goes on, Jesus simply says, make your home in me as I make mine in you. Home is not a heavenly mansion in the afterlife, but a safe place right in the midst of our anxious world. 
If anyone loves me, he'll keep my word and my father will love him and we shall come in and make our home with him. Home is that sacred space, external, internal, where we don't have to be afraid, where we're confident of hospitality and love. In our society, we have many homeless people sleeping not only in the streets and shelters and welfare hotels, but vagabonds who are in flight who never come home to themselves. They seek a safe place through alcohol or drugs, security and success, competence, friends, pleasure, notoriety, knowledge, even a little religion. They become strangers to themselves, people who have an address but are never at home, who never hear the voice of love or experience the freedom of God's children. To those of us in flight who are afraid to turn around lest we run into ourselves, Jesus says, you have a home. I am your home. Claim me as your home. You will find it to be the intimate place where I have found my home. It is right where you are in your innermost being, in your heart. And that's true if we take in this identity that we are the one whom Jesus loves. For some of you, I know this morning I'm reminding you of something that, uh, that you already know. Like, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever should believe in him wouldn't perish but have everlasting life. We know that. We know that God loves us. There's a degree to which John expresses this that I think is different than, than what I typically encourage and, and what most of us experience. It's, it's deeply, deeply personal. And for some of you, like, it, that's just news. Like, you know, maybe, maybe the personal relationship with Jesus just seems like a trite thing, but it's not. I mean, throughout Scripture, that's what it's supposed to be. Uh, deeply personal and possible because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. And so my, my hope and prayer for us is that that's, that's the standard that we're shooting for. Um, that it's deeply personal, that it's something that shapes everything about us. It shapes our confidence, it shapes our mood, it shapes our dreams, and it shapes the way that we love the people around us. And we cultivate that through his word, through our prayers, uh, through worship. Just this morning, and I'll close with this, and these guys can come back up and lead us in, a, in worship. But I was reading um, in, the, in the reading thing a psalm, and it, it, there's a line, he says, You have kept count of my tossings and kept my tears in your bottle. You have kept count of my tossings and kept my tears in your bottle. And what great imagery that whatever it is that you're going through, God has kept your tears in his bottle. <laughs> that is a God who is intensely personal and a God who loves you personally. Uh, would you take that in? And would you respond in worship? And if it's so hard for you to grasp that, would you plead with him? that he would give you a deeper understanding of how personal his love is for you. Father, we are before you this morning um, as people that, that need your love. We are people that compare ourselves to each other. We are people that think of ourselves as the one that nobody really loves a whole lot. We are people that our fundamental identity is some sense of inadequacy and something that, that we wish we were, but we're not. And, oh man, we're people that need the gospel and we need it over and over and over again. And it's all throughout the Bible. It's from the beginning to the end, Lord, that your love for us is deeply, deeply personal. And so as we are here, we are the disciples whom Jesus loves. And that's how you want us to see ourselves. God, I pray for anybody for whom this is news. The gospel is news. Um, I pray for anybody that has always thought about religion is something we do for God 
and not something God does for us. Lord, would your words, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, um, pierce their souls with the truth of that, reshape their lives. And would they come into a relationship with you based on that reality of their need for you and what you have done to provide for them. We love you and we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.